0: Investors Chronicle.
1: Hello, one and all, and welcome to the IC Companies and Markets podcast. My name is Mark Robinson, and I'm standing in for Dan Jones this week, who is uh, gallivanting around the Dodecanese Islands at the moment, probably taking in the glories of ancient Greece or perhaps even the Ottoman Empire. I'm joined this week by my colleagues. Julian Hoffman, and Gemma Slingo. Julian, and I will be talking a little bit about uh, a payments specialist in a moment. And Gemma is the author of this week's cover feature, uh, which has passed me by to a certain degree. So she'll be explaining it to me in some detail a little bit later. First, a couple of thoughts for the week as well. I don't know if you've uh, experienced this in recent times, Julian, but I have noticed that companies seem to be getting slightly more uh anxious about their ability to to refinance that's in the wake of the bank of england's 50 basis point increase and And also
2: also that our our water companies are about to go down the drain as it were
1: uh, oh yes yes i was going to mention that too that's something that we'll be looking at in the magazine over the next couple of weeks i'm reliably informed but uh even though we're approaching the main half year reporting season at the moment, but what I've seen in the comments uh, in various companies at the moment is that they're paying a little bit more uh, attention to their balance sheet now and the multiples contained within. I had a, a sort of a fairly fractious uh, dispute with a listed company uh, last week, uh, which will go unnamed for uh, litigation purposes. Uh, and they seemed to think uh, they took issue with the fact that uh, we include IFRS 16 within our debt calculations as well, which seemed rather peculiar at the time, given that their business depends to uh, a large degree on uh, big box premises and uh, storage yards. But they didn't seem to think that uh, an increase in uh, leasehold arrangement would have any material impact on their borrowing which is a a strange uh, set of circumstances to say the least because we've got to realize that uh, when interest rates go up as well, a lot of the providers uh, of said premises are also going to uh, need to pass those costs along. It's not an ideal uh, scenario for listed companies at the moment, but that's where we are. Uh, Julian, uh, you've been around the traps long enough to realize what's happening in the debt markets, but are there any, uh, parallels with the, the type of uh, the type of sort of problems that we had in 2007, 2008? I know there was ov- obviously a, a specific uh, real estate uh, uh, element to all that and the uh, problems in the derivative markets. But do you think we're going to see uh, a significant rise in debt delinquencies this time around?
2: I think it's probably on the cards. I mean, a lot of companies have seen their debt payments go up by 20% in a quarter, which is i mean if you you're sitting on 14 billion pounds worth of debt as uh, Thames water is uh, that is that's a very significant increase in your, yeah. your operating costs um i don't think the problem last time really was was about the mispricing of risk um i don't think that's an issue now it's more it's the, it's about the the pricing of assets in the interim which are going to cause the problems um so you, you have for banks and uh insurers and stuff they're sitting on um for example corporate bonds that you're losing value uh and that has to do with rising interest rates so the, the yields on those go up yeah so it, it, it's an interesting time to say the least uh mm-hmm. but yes i mean the water companies are the emblematic failure really of of uh, uh risk management in that sense and um yeah, i wouldn't be surprised if thames isn't the only one that has to have a interesting uh, chat with the regulators
1: yeah, I think we've highlighted this in the past, but it's well—it's public knowledge anyway, the level of uh, leverage that has been taken on uh, since those series of privatizations as well. But, of course, it's all been masked by the fact that we had an unprecedented period of uh, ultra-low interest rates. They're bond proxies by definition, I guess, so... Uh, uh, The the feeling always was as well, because their markets are regulated to the nth degree, really. So you would think that when deliberations are made about how much they can pay out in dividends through the year, uh, that they would have taken those debts into consideration. But uh, that will become clearer over the The coming months. Not many results out uh, over the last couple of weeks, as I'm sure uh, all my colleagues have realized. We're heading towards that uh, main half-year reporting season, which is always fun. But we did look at uh, one interesting result this week. It's a payment specialist, WISE, and it's one of those companies that actually uh, has benefited from the interest rate hikes we've seen.
2: That's right. It used to be called TransferWISE. Uh, I changed their, their name to WISE. The company, has built this kind of niche in um, alternative banking, I guess you could call it. It's almost like alternative banking. Yeah. Except they don't lend money and they basically specialize in uh, giving tourists and possibly um, this kind of expats who work abroad the option of transferring money in local currency at rare, very, very low rates. So that's their defining business model. Um, they've done quite well. They listed, I think, three years ago now. Yeah. And um, so this, yeah, the, the results are starting to show sort of mature comparators. So that's partly as well why we we looked at them in more depth this time. or uh, when Arthur wrote the story, uh, and the, the the key feature is also that they're the one of the few that that benefits from vast. Um, income and in, when interest rates go up so uh, one of the the benefits of being a transfer company is that um, especially if you're dealing with a lot of people who are just going on holiday two or three times a year is that the balances that are left tend to just sit in the account so um, Wise doesn't pay the interest to the to its customers it just keeps it from from uh from what's uh what's that there it isn't uh, remember it's not a bank it doesn't it doesn't offer income yeah um, so it, it does have that um, a very uh plausible business model when when rates when rates are high so it's you know the interest income was mainly but why it's um Sales increased by seventy three percent in the year, and that kind of offset offset you know relatively high marketing spend. So it was, it was quite a good result for them, really. But I don't I mean whether it was entirely their own uh, efforts is uh, is open to interpretation. I would say,
1: yeah, they're in a sweet spot at the moment, and those growth rates were in excess of uh, consensus expectation as well. Arthur makes that point. The cash margin as well increased by a fairly hefty, 2.9 percentage points, up to 24.7%. So, you know, the the business is obviously uh, in a favorable position at the moment. Arthur also made the point that uh, about two-thirds of their new customers joined through word of mouth, which, as we all know, is the most uh, effective form of generating business because it doesn't entail marketing costs as well. So they're, you know, they're they're in a pretty good space at the moment. Looking at the valuation, Julian, I mean, the the Ford rating is twenty seven times forecast earnings. Arthur seems to think this is a bit of expensive, a bit expensive. But mind you, if you if you'd asked that same question to him uh, eighteen months, two years ago, he'd have said, "Oh, that's that's actually not that bad."
2: Well, yeah, it depends on depends on how, how much faith you have in the long term viability of the business. In that, um, it's a relatively easy business to copy um and you know why wise, uh, wise has has a, you know a, a proliferating um number of competitors more or doing more or less the same thing so it's not a uh, it's not a, a moat that's protecting the business particularly it, you've got to just think of it as um first mover advantage i think that would be the its main selling point. and the fact that it's built a business quite quickly in 3 or 4 years uh, based very on, on a relatively modest amount of, as you say, a, a modest amount of marketing, and once they have that brand recognition, it's one that people tend to stick with. I think, particularly if you're only going on holiday every so often, you're, you're never going to bother to sign up with a suite of, you know, transfer companies just to see who can give you, you know, zero point one percent instead of zero point two percent on your on your euro charges. Um, so, yes, it, it, it is a high valuation, and, and it reflects their growth, but um, I would say it's kind of slightly brittle would be my interpretation of it.
1: Okay, so they, they're buying into that projected growth, but the fact is it's not a strong moat, uh, in your opinion. Uh, I guess the, the high street banks as well do offer certain alternatives as well, because if you're traveling on the continent, for instance, I know that Lloyd's of... Uh, of whom I'm stable with, uh, offer uh, Euro accounts as well. But um, we shall see, Arthur, make the last point he makes as well, that uh, because we're seeing rising immigration and uh, cross-border transactions, that uh, feeds into the investment case too. But as you say, uh, it's quite easy for a disruptor to be disrupted itself. Yeah, they also get criticism for um, the fact that they're relatively,
2: easy to circumvent their controls i mean uh, this is kind of transfer companies generally not just um not, we're not just picking on wise but um you know there was an investigation about how you could just give a completely false address and you would end up being able to use a, a, a kind of a transfer bank account
1: oh okay um
2: uh, yeah so there's this kind of there, there are sort of back, background issues but um it's, uh, it is, you know, for, 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 the fact that it doesn't have a huge capital base, it's, it's generating really quite good growth. And I mean, the question is whether that as the market matures, whether that will continue at those, at that, that pace really.
1: Now we're going to move on to this week's cover feature, which is, relates to the attention economy. Now, uh, the author, uh, Gemma Slingo is with us here. Uh, Gemma, this is a generational thing, but it, uh, It sort of passed me by a lot of the details, even though it's a very interesting article. So, I mean, what actually is the attention economy and, and why is it relevant to investors now?
0: Hi, Mark. It basically refers to the idea that attention is a valuable resource, basically, that can be fought over by companies. Um, And as you say, it is a relatively new phenomenon. So in my cover feature, I mention a book by a former Google engineer, I think he is, which makes the argument that for most of human history, we've only had access to quite limited amounts of information. So that might be through books or newspapers or or word of mouth. But the arrival of digital computing, and particularly the iPhone, means that we're now constantly surrounded by this information. And human attention has actually become the scarce and valuable thing, and the thing that Basically, companies want to get get a piece of. So, the article looks at how different companies are competing for our attention, how they seem to be getting on, and in a way, what that tells us about our own collective state of mind.
1: Oh, clearly, I haven't been paying attention in this regard as well. <clears throat> so, it's a it's it's another intangible that uh, uh, companies uh, are, are looking to exploit. Why is it getting harder for companies to? Uh, Monetize the human attention.
0: If you think about the companies that are interested in it, it might be big tech companies, publishing companies, TV companies, and one of the main ways they make money is through advertising. And obviously, I'm sure we've discussed on the podcast before, that's been really struggling over the last few months. So you've had loads of updates from companies like ITV or Reach, S4 Capital, Different advertising agencies basically warning that the market is getting pretty tough and clients are reining in their advertising spend. So that's one thing I discuss in the piece, sort of people, because of the market conditions, it's much harder to make make money from the the customers.
1: I guess that's a familiar refrain, even given conventional advertising channels too. We've seen that in the past. There's a, a contra theory that runs that companies have become Uh, in some cases, a little bit more willing uh, to spend on marketing during economic downturns in order to uh, sustain or increase their their market share. But that's a a separate story altogether. Now, uh, bearing this in mind, are are you seeing any signs of improvement in the advertising market at the moment?
0: I think it depends where you look. So I think the more traditional media and entertainment companies are where you see the real struggles. But even the big tech companies like Google and Meta um, have seen a decline in advertising revenue. But that was mainly last year. And we have seen a bit of a bounce back in growth. And you can see it reflected in in the share price, as, as Arthur discussed in his recent cover feature about Meta. But I think what's also interesting is the way that companies are able to advertise and try and grab our attention seems to have fundamentally changed since, I don't know, over the last two years, really, if not a shorter period of time. So in the piece, I talk about how everyone and particularly young people seems to be hooked on this short form video which basically video clips are about a minute or less um, and seems to be linked to this idea that our attention spans are actually getting shorter Um, but that sort of footage is actually really hard to monetize because it's so short it's hard to actually get an advert in there. So I talk a little bit about how the way that big tech has affected our minds is actually sort of shot themselves in the foot a little bit because it then becomes a lot harder to to monetize the sort of content they're trying to trying to flog.
1: Yeah I mean it, it, it is that the future of uh, advertising being linked in with the kind of mass psychosis uh, in the in the general population that might be a rather crude way of putting it I mean one of the one of the advantages of, um, of digital advertising one that's often expressed is the fact that it's uh, it's much, that much easier to Tailor tailor it to individual needs as well, but uh, that doesn't say much about uh, a collective response. So, if I was an investor as well, um, what's are there ways to access uh, that kind of econ- economy? You know, beyond looking at big tech, the the metas and Netflix of this world.
0: In the piece, I do try and trace the supply chain back a little bit because I think we often become really obsessed with the. This- tech disruptors and the big names and thinking of what way their share prices are going to go. But actually, if you trace it back a little bit, you come to a lesser known subsect of companies. Maybe they might be manufacturers or distributors who sort of feed off the same content creation, but they're less well known, probably a bit smaller and maybe a little bit more reliable. I don't want to give away too much of, of what's in the piece, but I try and identify two or three um, which investors might be interested in. But again, it's not a fail-safe strategy is the conclusion I came to because I think people thought for a while coming out of the pandemic that content creation was not really cyclical. Everyone wanted to be an influencer or everyone was filming things and that that was a sort of fail-safe strategy. But I think the last few months have definitely burst the bubble in in that way.
1: If you're going to go down this road as well, you're looking at growth strategies really as well because that – whole quarter of the market is evolving as you say far too rapidly for me julian do you have any um thoughts on this it's it's an area which is uh as i say before has rather passed me by unfortunately like so much else in life
2: <laughs> i think i can join you in that school i'm not <laughs> sure that uh, um i mean it's it's there in, in almost everything we do online but um i i don't really understand the appeal or the economics of it to be honest but um Yes, I'm I'm sure that Gemma has done an excellent job of uh, explaining it in her piece.
1: Well, no doubt about it. So uh, we'll we'll obviously uh, leave that with Gemma and Arthur and and the youth of today, Uh, the old brave new world. I think um, probably that's about it for this week as well. It's a sort of slightly short edition, unfortunately, but... uh, Uh, not a big great deal has been happening on the announcements front but uh, that's going to change very shortly so i'd just like to thank uh, both Gemma and julian for their contributions this week and uh, hopefully by the next time that you listen to us the lessons of the attention economy uh, will have sunk in until then goodbye acast powers the world's best
2: podcasts here's a show that we recommend